he doesn't do it in a way that compromises his holiness or his goodness or his mercy or his wrath when you when you focus his love in and through Christ because then you see that he is the justifier of the wicked and yet he's just as, as Paul tells us in Romans to be both just and the justifier of the wicked well that's an act of love and mercy but he's just in that he's holy in that so God doesn't save us at the expense of his attributes but as, as a result of his attributes he saves us the Bible reveals much about who God is his will, and what he's done for his people in history. As Christians, we're invited into relationship with him and indwelt by his spirit. And yet, God is also transcendent, and therefore can never be fully comprehended by us as finite creatures. How should we understand God in his fullness, both near to us as Father, and yet above and beyond us as Creator? In our interview today, I'm talking with Mark Jones about how to bring these seemingly contradictory realities about God together in our own minds through discussing five specific attributes of God that we often neglect in our thinking and our theology. Mark is the pastor of Faith Vancouver Presbyterian Church in British Columbia and is the author of God Is, a devotional guide to the attributes of God from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Great to be with you. So something I've always wrestled with uh, when thinking about theology, uh, our attempts to not only understand but even speak about God rightly, is just how limited human language and the human mind are when it comes to, to knowing God, let alone describing who God is. So I wonder if you could help us start there. You know, we're going to discuss God's attributes but I wonder if you could help us just back up a little bit. How do you think about our human ability to even think about God, given that we're finite and created and, and God is transcendent and eternal? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. And uh, I'm reminded of, well, there's two things. The first thing that I'm reminded of, I, Herman Bavink makes a statement about uh, God's word being anthropomorphic through and through. So everything about how God communicates with us is a condescension on his part and even you know the language he speaks to us mm. is in baby language um, and helps us to to have a true knowledge of him not an exhaustive of course but you know just because he condescends and speaks in baby language to us doesn't mean what we know about him isn't true it's just not everything that's true about him and uh, that's been helpful to me the other thing is um, when you look at the attributes of God, that's why a lot of theologians have insisted that generally when we speak of God's attributes, it's by way of negation, what God isn't. Um, we, I'm, now, my title is called God Is, uh, who, who is God? Mm. But, you know, in the book, you know, I'll refer to time and time again that, you know, we learn about who God is by what God isn't. So those are two ways of just how we deal with the fact that we're humans trying to think about God. Hmm. Yeah, that, that form of theology uh, that you reference, apophatic, apophatic theology, uh, theology through negation. Uh, unpack that a little bit. Like, what do you think about that? Is that, is that maybe we don't, we don't like the, all the connotations there, but is that at essence, though, what we're, what we're doing here? We're just sort of defining God by, by uh, things he's not? 
Yeah, in a sense, I mean, it, it just, I think it's helpful for us to, to do that so that we don't make God in our image. So one of the things that we do is, you know, God is, even God will say he's not a man like us, that he should lie or he's not, you know. Um, so God is not these things. It's to rid us of any ideas of God that would take away from his glory. So we could have an almost infinite number of things that God is not. Um, and then it's still, the point is it still falls short of establishing who he is. So if we only ever spoke about who God is, we would never be able to do justice to him that way. Mm. So one way we try to do justice to who God is by is by saying who he isn't or what he isn't. Um, and that it just helps us to not commit idolatry in our conception of God. Mm. So then let's turn to a few different attributes of God that uh, that don't often make the top 10 list. So let's, let's put it that way. These are attributes that I think maybe often get neglected a little bit in our conversations about God that might not be as, as well known to, uh, as you said, you know, the person in the pew who is, who is eager to understand God a little bit better than they currently do. And so we'll just start with the first one, the idea that God is simple. Uh, what, what does that mean? Well, there's there's books written on this. In fact, uh, there's a few good books I've read uh, in the last few years where you know it's given entirely to just that topic of what does it mean for God to be simple or without parts. Um, and if you go back to Irenaeus or Augustine, this isn't like a modern sort of uh, post-Reformation scholastic dogmatizing thing where they've said, okay. Um, this is what we need to say about God based on Greek philosophy and, and those things. Mm. Um, you know, I think Augustine will say, like, for God to be is the same as to be strong or to be just or to be wise um, and to be whatever else you may say of that simple multiplicity or that multiple simplicity. So um, it, it's really important to understand that God is uh, an undivided essence, and that helps us not to say anything about his attributes that would either contradict another attribute or not do justice to that attribute. So when we say he's love, what do we even mean by that? And simplicity means that his love is his holiness, is his power, is his eternity, is his unchangeability, etc. Hmm. So so unpack that, because uh, we hear you say that, but that might just immediately sound... Uh incomprehensible to somebody listening. What does it mean to say that God's love is his holiness? I mean, it doesn't, are you just completely blowing out any distinction there that would give any meaning to those words by saying that? I think what we're trying to say is that his love doesn't need to be compromised in any way so that, you know, when he, he loves us, um, let's say unto salvation, and there's different types of love we speak about, um, but let me just talk about his love unto salvation, is that he doesn't do it in a way that compromises his holiness or his goodness or his mercy or his wrath when you, when you focus his love in and through Christ, because then you see that he is the justifier of the wicked, and yet he's just, as, as Paul tells us in Romans, to be both just and the justifier of the wicked. Well, that's an act of love and mercy, but he's just in that. He's holy in that. So God doesn't save us at the expense of his attributes, but as, as a result of his attributes, mm. he saves us. Yeah, as a result of all of his attributes. Yeah, mm. yeah. So then uh, you also speak of God's simplicity as as another way to talk about that is that he cannot be divided. He's not 
He's not the sum of his parts. Um, how does that fit with the doctrine of the Trinity, which uh, would seem to suggest that there is a sense in which God can be divided, uh, and yet there is unity there? How, how do we understand simplicity and Trinity together? Well, the, the, the short answer that I think has really helped me over the years is to distinguish between um, person's appropriate language and essence appropriate language. And there are certain um, phrases and terms we use that reflect the, the person's um, and, and that are proper to the persons like begetting and begottenness, inspiration, and then essence appropriate language that is appropriate to each of the three persons um, in exactly the same way. Mm. So um, once you make that distinction between persons appropriate language and essence appropriate language, it, it helps, but also it, it tells you that things like um, Augustine's dictum that the under the external works of the Trinity are undivided. That's a result of simplicity. So that you, we don't just say that you know the Father created. Um, there is a, a fancy Latin frame terminus operationis, which is the the terminal work. Um, sometimes it focuses on a specific person. Uh, it terminates on that person, but really it's never at the expense of the other two. So. Um, it's just, again, we're using language for babies, mm. us, to understand God's work of redemption, and it does terminate on certain persons, but it's never that person in the abstract from the other two. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know, one of the, the fascinating quotes from the book was, uh, there is technically no such thing as God's attributes, plural, but yeah. only God's simple, undivided essence. Uh, mm -hmm. And so why would you say that matters, that particular nuance, that there are actually not multiple attributes in God, but really it's it's just God's essence? Uh, why yeah. would you emphasize that as something important for Christians to understand? Yeah, it comes back, like when we talk about God's simplicity, that uh, it, it's not like I have an idea of holiness. And, you know, let's think of a pizza that's been sliced up into eight or 12 pieces, and each of those pieces represents an attribute. It's not like I get to have an idea of holiness, and then I have an idea of justice, and then an idea of goodness, and I, I sort of piece all those things together. That's where you, you, you get into trouble, because our idea of holiness must be governed by our idea of justice and goodness and vice versa. So it just keeps us from coming up with an attribute on its own and uh, giving human ideas to that that may not be actually true of who God is. And I think love is the the obvious one. You know, people talk about God's love today, and they have for ages, where it's their own conception of love, and then they will piece the other attributes together to fit this idea of love so that holiness suffers, justice, wrath, etc., all suffer because love is this sort of governing attribute. So that's one of the reasons why I, you know, we can't speak of attributes plural technically because you can never abstract one from mm, the other. Yeah. So then I, I wonder if you could do this uh, both for this attribute but also for the others that we're going to discuss today. If you had to summarize, why is this attribute, God's simplicity, good news for the Christian? Uh, it means that everything that God is towards us, He is. So it's it's not like, oh, you know, God is loving towards us. He is loving towards us, but He's He's everything that He is towards us. And you can rely upon the entire God to be good news to you. So you can end up loving His power as much as His love. You can end up loving His unchangeability as much as His power. Um, you know, what do I love most about God? 
when I'm suffering? Is it his goodness, knowing that he's good in my suffering? Or is it his wisdom, knowing that I can't figure this out, but I trust his wisdom in this? Or is it his power to make sure it all turns out well? Well, I don't have to stress myself out with that question in a sense. I can say that God's wisdom, his power, his goodness is everything to me because all of those three attributes are really God to me mm. rather than, oh, you know, maybe God's power is not going to sort this out in the end. You know, I don't have to worry. I can rest secure that every attribute is, is operative, let's say, um, towards me and others. So when you say that, how should we understand then something like God's wrath, where we read in Scripture that there is a sense in which uh, God's wrath was owed towards us. We were the recipients, the rightful recipients of his wrath. We would experience that attribute, uh, but but we've been saved from that. Uh, we've instead received grace rather than wrath. So in, in what sense is God's wrath uh, directed towards us as a function of his essence, when I thought that's what we were saved from. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, you know, I the thing about God's let's call it his his anger, his wrath, his fury, or his, his we even call it his hatred. Um, it's it's not um, what we would call an essential attribute, but a, a relative. Um, so it's it's in relation. It's an act of his will uh, in relation to sin. So how can I love God's wrath the way I love his love? Well, I love his wrath, that his wrath was, an exor- was exercised in terms of his love towards me upon his son. I mean, it was the, he was under the wrath of God. Um, and, of course, that gets into questions about Christ's relationship with the Father at the cross and, and so on. But um, how can I love God's wrath? I can love God's wrath, A, in terms of that that wrath is what saves me it's is it his love that saves me or his wrath well when you see his wrath unfolds upon or or is exercised towards his son that's an act of love towards me i can also love his wrath that his wrath will sort out all of the misdeeds that have ever happened in this world and if that wasn't the case that would lead me to despair like people getting away with murder Mm, we hate that intuitively nobody gets away with murder because god is who he is and so he will punish the wicked um and and you know there's interesting questions about how we will feel in heaven about god exercising his wrath upon maybe even loved ones right Mm. um but i'm persuaded that I will love his wrath. If I can love his wrath now as a sinner, I'm going to love his wrath so much more as one who sees with God's eyes, in a sense, much better than I see now. Yeah. Well, this is a good segue. Let's jump into that issue of God's anger, which is another one of the attributes that I think is often uh, not one that we would probably jump to immediately. And I think in in common parlance and just the way that we often think about this issue, it can be easy to assume that God's anger and wrath is over on one side of the spectrum, and on the other side of that same line is his love and his grace. 
And so there's this little bit of a give and take there that if you go closer to his love, you're obviously getting further away from his anger and his wrath. It seems to be suggesting, you seem to be suggesting that's not the right way to think about it, but is that the case? Is that the wrong way to think about it? And if so, uh, what would be the right way to view those two attributes in relation to one another? Yes, it's it's a tricky question because, you know, on the one hand, you do want to, I don't want to soften his wrath by saying, well, it, it's, you know, it's just a big loving God. I, I mean, I see his wrath as an outward act of his will, whereby he um, hates sin. And you can even talk about how God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. And, and people kind of mock that, but it's historically, it's the true reformed idea mm-hmm. that the only thing that God properly hates is sin. And that even the devil, to remove sin from the devil, he would love the devil. Um, So God hates nothing that he has made. Um, He hates sin only. So uh, I don't want to like make God into a big teddy bear by saying his wrath is his love. But at the same time, uh, it is true that God will punish according to his, his wrath and his view of sin, which is based upon his holiness, his justice, um, and so on. So, um, it's a balancing act, and the only way to balance it is to either look at God's wrath in Christ, which satisfies our sin, or in us, which we can't satisfy, and um, take away Christ, and yet yeah, it's scary stuff. Mm. Um, and it will be scary stuff. I mean, there's passages in, in the scriptures where, I mean, he really does reap destruction upon the world in Noah's time, uh, Nineveh, there was a, a threat of punishment, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, it's there. Um, but you always see redemption very closely tied to his wrath. Yeah. You know, Lot is, and his family are saved uh, apart from his wife, or um, fear comes upon the whole church when Ananias and Sapphira, uh, you know, fall down dead. So uh, very closely to his wrath is his love and mercy. Mm, yeah. So, so then maybe unpack that a little bit more in answer to our question. Why why is God's anger and his wrath good news for Christians? Oh, I'm trying to think of the, the best way I would answer. Why is his anger and his, his anger and his wrath is good news for Christians in the sense that God doesn't exercise his anger and his wrath in the abstract, right? Because God is simple. He's not exercising his wrath and anger as a guy without love, mm. you know, as some person without love. He's he's exercising his wrath and his anger as an unchangeable, um, all knowledge, you know, he has all knowledge, he's omniscient. So he's not, you know, sometimes we exercise our own wrath, but we don't have full knowledge of the situation, which means our wrath can be misplaced or it can be too much yeah. or too little. So when he exercises his wrath, it's always with complete knowledge of the facts. It's always as one who is infinitely loving, and it's always as one who's in complete control of himself, so to speak. So that's the good news is that his wrath is not unjust. Mm. Um, and, and and to Christ, it wasn't unjust because the son was as agreeable in receiving the wrath of God as God was in displaying his wrath to his son. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's move on to neglecting. Uh, neglected <laughs> attribute number three, God is infinite. And I think we're all probably pretty familiar with the idea that God is eternal. I feel like that that term is used more often. But how is eternal different than infinite? Uh, infinite's one of my, my favorites. Uh, you know, there's this um, phrase that the early 
um, well, it's it's basically it's not just a reformed commonplace; it's a, a Christian commonplace that it's some have called it like a meta attribute. Hmm. So it it like is simplicity it, it qualifies every other attribute, which is a strange language to use qualifying because you know you can't qualify God's infinity, but it means there's no limits to his perfections. So whatever God is, he is infinitely so. His love doesn't have boundaries. His his wrath doesn't have uh, boundaries. Holiness, there's no limit to it. So that's what keeps us from ever fully conceiving of God as we ought or can, because we are finite. He is infinite. So um, there is no end to his being. He's eternal. There's no end to um, his attributes. They are infinite. And um, that's one of the most exciting things about even going to heaven is that we're never going to be in a place where we've learned everything. Mm, yeah. We'll be a constant growing of our knowledge of God and we'll be there 10 billion years and still have scratched the surface on who he mm. is. There's no like end point. Okay, I've learned all there is to know, right? And even Christ in his human nature can't conceive of God's attributes because they are infinite. So even the God-man himself, uh, according to his human nature, can never fully conceive of, of his divine nature. All right, so then speaking about his infinity, how, how is that, that doctrine in particular good news for us? Uh, it means that like... <sighs> probably a hundred applications. One, the first thing that came to my mind was that, uh, you know, Luther jokes, I don't know if he jokes, maybe he was serious, but you know, you can go commit adultery 80 times in a day, right? I don't know how someone could physically do that, but I suppose they could try. Um, your your sins, right? 80 adulteries, um, a thousand lies. Uh, Christ's death for us was, was an infinite death um, and he can cover and wash away an infinite amount of sins. Mm. So no sinner is ever too big of a sinner to be saved by an infinite sacrifice. So even in terms of redemption, that's that's good news yeah. for us. Um, there's lots of others. I mean, even just I look forward to what I'm going to be able to learn in heaven. Uh, you know, I enjoy reading here on earth, but it's it pales in comparison to what I'm going to learn in heaven about God. So that's another blessing of the, the infinite hmm. Uh, God that we serve. Yeah. All right. Another another attribute that is seems connected to all of this, as we already established, they're all interconnected in different ways. Would have to be God's independence, uh, also mm. known as His aseity. Uh, what does that mean when we say that God is is wholly independent? Yeah, well, it's one of my. Uh, I read a. I wrote an article for Desiring God on God's independence, and um, I, I I remember really enjoying that article because as I re-looked at the doctrine and re-tried um, to understand it, it's it's that God is completely satisfied. There's the Desiring God language. <laughs> he's he's completely satisfied in, in who he is because he is truly independent. There's nothing he needs. There's nothing um, that makes him happier. There's nothing that can harm him. Uh, there's nothing actually that can bless God. Uh, properly speaking, which makes his salvation of us all the more remarkable, is that it's not like he needed to save us. It's not like he needed to create us. He doesn't need me. And yet he's chosen as a truly independent person to bless me. When I bless someone and when human beings 
um, do anything. It's We do it as dependent beings, often, sometimes rightfully so, because we are looking for something back, because we need it. But God doesn't actually need it, which makes his love towards us all the more remarkable, because it's truly free. Whereas our love can never be truly free, because any love we have is derived from God himself. And whatever love we offer, we're looking for a return on that love because he who loves his brother loves himself or he who loves his wife loves himself, right? Um, so that's that's one of the aspects of independence I, I quite enjoy mm. thinking about. So does that mean, you made a comment earlier about how you know, nothing we can do can you know give anything to God. It can't make him happy. It can't give him a sense of pleasure beyond what he already has in himself. Does that mean then that us doing as believers, as redeemed sinners, us obeying God's will and seeking to glorify him in our lives doesn't actually make him happy in any meaningful sense? Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't. Um, so here's the, here's the tricky part, of course, because it does talk about how we please God in the scriptures, you know, and how the thing that David did after he committed adultery and killed Uriah, the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And then we, we look at the fact that God is without passions. And so um, how, how do we understand that? Um, firstly, you know, it, it, God would not be God if everything I did through the course of the day changed his inward disposition. Mm. You know, as if like, you know, God wakes up one day and he's like, all right, I hope Mark uh, behaves himself <laughs> today because my happiness depends upon yeah, it. Right. You know, that that's that's crazy. But then as an outward act of his of his will, um, when we say that God is pleased, it is it's anthropomorphic language to show that what we have done is agreeable to God's nature. Um and that when we displease the Lord, it's disagreeable to his nature and very often an outward act of his will will manifest itself in relation to whether we please God or displease him. And so when we please God, there's a sense in which we're living in obedience to his will, but we're also going to be rewarded by that pleasure. Um, it's a language for reward and punishment, mm. pleasure, being pleased and displeased. So that manifests itself primarily, I think, in the in the doctrine of Christ, where as, as God-man, he is able to be pleased and displeased, you see, in his life um, on earth with his disciples, you know, his displeasure as well as his pleasure. Um, and those are proper human emotions that God himself is not capable of. Even sympathy, John Owen talks about how God, properly speaking, cannot sympathize with us as God because he can't suffer, he can't undergo any of the experiences that we undergo. But in Christ, he can. So things like sympathy and and happiness, as we understand it, human happiness are are true of God in Christ, mm. but not God proper, sort of. All right, well, last but not least, let's talk about something that you've already kind of referenced briefly, and it's maybe not properly an attribute in the traditional sense, but but still important and relevant to this, the idea that God is anthropomorphic, that how, that how he has chosen to reveal himself to us, especially in Scripture, is just inherently 
anthropomorphic in, in so much of the ways it, it talks about him. What do you mean by that? Unpack that for us and then explain why this is important. Well, the, the important part is that, you know, we do have to deal with the scriptures, you know, and, and everything that pertains to human beings is is actually in the scriptures attributed to God. So God's God's face, his eyelids, his ear, his nostrils, lips, tongue, finger. God speaks to us in a certain way that, that helps us to understand, you know, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Um, even um, things like he regretted making humanity or jealousy and anger, um, etc., are are words that are used to help us understand why God does certain things. Uh, and so uh, we also hold that God is without passions. So how do you balance the God being without passions versus evidently displaying passions, right? Um, and so that's where we get the idea of uh, anthropomorphic language. And um, then we also talk about the difference between passions and affections. Um, so uh, an affection is a an inward uh, inalterable disposition of, of who God is, his will. And so uh, God is love. Um, but when you see um, God also being holy and a creature obeying God, um, like Christ on the cross, we could speak about God leaping for joy or rejoicing in that. Mm. Well, it's not like God properly gets happier, but because he is love, it's a outward... Um, manifestation or outward explanation of of how god would respond to that situation mm. um grief and repentance it's not like god you know are we prepared to say god gets depressed um no it's it's a it's language to help us understand that god is holy it does not approve of you know flagrant sinning um but yeah it it has been one of the the trickier questions because there is a lot in the scripture on that, and it's how do we piece it all together? Um, if God is immutable, how can we speak of him having passions? But yet, the scripture does speak about passions, mm. and so we distinguish between passions and affections. So what would you say to the person who's listening to that explanation, and and they're kind of thinking, you know, I, I just want to read the Bible. I want to read my Bible and, and take it seriously, take it literally. And it sounds like what you're doing is sort of... Uh, Ex explaining away all those biblical passages with this kind of convenient loophole, all all the sort of protect this theoretical yeah. or abstract idea of God that isn't actually what Scripture presents to us. Yeah, I think I, you know I understand that. It's the question is what do you you know do you stand to to gain more or lose more from that mindset? So you know the Socinians would say something similar you know, hey, listen, you know, we just want to read our Bibles and let the Bible speak for itself. But, you know, what are you losing? Um, you know, John Owen called a mutable, a mutable God is of the dunghill um, or or God, you know, inwardly uh, upset. It's like, what do you lose with that? And and the things you you, you stand to lose uh, in terms of what you think you're gaining is, is far greater. Um, I want to know that God's love towards me, for example, is an unchangeable powerful, immutable love, because that gives me uh, security. And it makes sense of all of the passages that do speak of his unchangeable love. So when you call these, I won't call these types of people, but when you call them out on things like, hey, do you know what that might do to God's love? They go, okay, hang on now. We don't want to mess with that. But I also want to, uh, so 
tr theology is tricky business. You know, the, the Trinity doesn't just fall off the pages to us. It requires some navigation and some complex terminology. Um, and it's the same with the doctrine of God. I mean, imagine it was just that easy to say that God um, has bad days because of how creatures react. Um, what would you lose mm. from God as a result of that, you know, his majesty and, and, and things like that? So I don't think you, you, you win by just saying, hey, listen, I just want to read the Bible because you're, you're going to necessarily lose in other areas. So then take us back to anthropomorphic language in particular. Why is that good news for Christians? Uh, the, to me, again, this comes back to Christ. The, the anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic language actually is a, is a sort of constant hint throughout the Old Testament, especially that, that there is going to be an incarnation and that everything that is said of God in the Old Testament scriptures is actually true of God in Christ. You know, uh, he, he has hands, he has, he has emotions. He, he you know, it's, it's, it, it's, the scripture is not just anthropomorphic through and through, it's, it's Christ-centered, to use a phrase that no scholar likes anymore today, <laughs> but I'll keep using it. Um, it's still Christ-centered through and through, so that even the passions of God that we see in the Old Testament are actually pointing us to God in Christ, and uh, it is actually perfectly fulfilled mm -hmm. in him. Uh, with his anger, whether it's in the temple or to the Pharisees or even to the churches in Revelation, um, it's it's all there. So that's the good news is that it, it's fulfilled in Christ. Mm, yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much for helping to walk us through, uh, I think, a, a pretty uh, deep, some deep waters, it feels like, when it comes to, to knowing God, uh, understanding a little bit better who he is. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks. It was, uh, I, I got to say, it was, it was an enjoyable interview, but it's, it's nice to have someone who, who actually seems to have read my, my book and asked the, the right types of questions. So kudos to you for, um, for being a very good interviewer. Thanks. That was Mark Jones on five attributes of God that we too often neglect. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, God Is, a devotional guide to the attributes of God available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.